I just finished recording the episode with Shay, and wow, I don't really have the words to describe it. He was a normal kid, went through a horrific accident that left him 65% burned with his clothing melted into his skin, went through years of rehab and surgeries, and he has risen from the ashes with an iron will. And he's, he's just determined to compete and succeed. Uh, we talk about raising kids to be mentally tough in today's day and age. We talk about gratitude and his journey from being a normal person who hates running to becoming a four-time member of Team USA, ranked in the top 1% of Ironman athletes. I suspect you'll be in awe of his story and his uh, approach to life, just like I was. So here we go, Shay Eskew. All right, we're live. Shay, thank you for for joining the podcast. Um, when I when I announced that I was doing a podcast, I said, "Hey, if you know awesome people out there that would be good for the show, send me a note." And so, a mutual friend uh, sent me a note right away and said, "Hey, you got to have Shay Eskew on here." And and so I I started, "Who is Shay?" And I look, and five seconds into my uh, research on your bio, I was like, "Oh yeah, I'm sold. I definitely want him on here." <laughs> so thank you for coming, Thanks. Shay. Hey, absolutely. It's my pleasure. And, you know, your topic to me probably is one of the biggest things out there that people need to focus on in this current time of uncertainty. Yeah, it's uh, family's important for sure. Um, it's, it's funny. I was looking yesterday, um, thinking about my day, actually, today when I looked at uh, your Instagram post from yesterday and um, I was thinking, you know, today I, I slept in. I went to my brother-in-law's birthday party. I had five tacos. I had way too much dessert. And then I uh, saw on your Instagram, you ran a 70-mile Ironman on your own with no uh, n- no aid stations or anything. So I was like, man, it's a different it was, dude. Uh, well, it's one of those, like, so I've been racing now for 12 years. And it's one of those, when you commit to that lifestyle, to me, you're either all in or you're not. And that's just the way I am. Like, if I'm going to do it, I want to be the best. I never want to half do anything. And so my kids, when they see me getting up and getting all my nutrition set up to go do all this out in the park, like, Dad, do you have to do this? I was like, no, but that's why you do it, right? If you had to do it, it's not as much fun. But to know you intentionally subject yourself to four and a half hours of suffering, that's what makes it so rewarding. Right. And then they see you come crawling in the front door. They just look at you like, oh, my God, Dad, are you OK? I was like, I'm good. I just need to, you know, cool down a little bit. But Dad's fine. And of course, like, all right, well, don't forget, Dad, you told me we'd get ice cream now. So <laughs> yeah, get ice cream. Do they never forget you make any kind of promise? They, they have a horrible memory about anything except for what you told them they could have. <laughs> Dude, if you were to say, hey, remember last night I told you you couldn't download this app. Dad, I have no idea. But if you mentioned anything else like ice cream or something they really care about a year ago, hey, Dad, remember at 2 o'clock Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) So true. So true. Oh, man. Um, Shay, you've got an incredible life. Uh, I 
struggling for words here. So many cool things. You're you've uh, wrestled bears and researched bears. You're a motivational speaker. Uh, done Ironmans. You're a, a four-time member of Team USAA. Top one percent Ironman athletes. Best-selling author and most important father of five. Um, so. I wouldn't ask you, I guess, origin story. You can take it however you want to go. You know, maybe uh, typically people will tell us a little about their childhood and and we can just kind of go from there. But uh, I'll let you kind of guide us however you want to kind of hit the highlights and and walk through your story. I may pause and and stop uh, as we go, but let's roll. Absolutely. Well, like so many of your listeners, was a normal kid, right? Um, Grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. But everything changed for me August 4th, 1982. I was eight years old. My mom had asked me to warn my neighbors about an aggressive yellow jacket's nest that they had in the ground. So I recruited my friend, Jeff, who was seven. We walked across the street. We knocked on the door. The dad wasn't home, but the 15-year-old daughter was. And we proceeded to tell her about this aggressive yellow jacket's nest that had swarmed my bike the day before. She then asked, hey, can you guys show show me the nest? We walked down there and we look at it. And she goes, will you help me get rid of it? And I preface this by saying I had the most conservative parents you've ever met. Didn't drink, didn't smoke. I wasn't allowed to stay with babysitters. I couldn't go to fireworks shows. I couldn't jump on trampolines. If there's wow. any chance of anything ever happening, I wasn't allowed to do it. And so we said, what do you want us to do? She goes, I just need you guys to stand here. You don't need to do anything. She grabs a match, walks up, throws it down at the nest, which is a hole in the ground. Nothing happens. So we're standing there watching these yellow jackets fly in and out. We're about 10, maybe 15 feet away from the nest. Without saying anything, she grabs a cup of gasoline, pitches it between us, splashes me on the right side of my face, my shoulder, my neck, my back, hits my buddy Jeff on the left side, hits that spark of a match, Within an instant, we're engulfed in flames. Hmm. And it's crazy. I mean, keep in mind, I'm an eight-year-old kid, right? All these thoughts are rushing through your head. My first reaction is get away from the bees. They're going to sting you. My next reaction was stop, drop, and roll. So I was fortunate enough to stop, drop, and roll, put my fire out, looked over my buddy Jeff. He's still standing there screaming, engulfed in flames. So I ran up the hill, grabbed a water hose, put him out. And I remember just standing there, like alternating the hose over the top of our heads. The water's crashing down on us. And you were thinking, what just happened? Literally, our skin is black and charred. It's melted. My clothes are melted to my body. I touched my head. All my hair came out. So my whole life just changed within an instant, right? Nothing that I had experienced in the previous eight years was to prepare me for what I'd endure for the next 38 we soon found out we had no insurance. My dad's work had canceled on dependents before, and we had not secured it. Oh. We had an estimated $2 million hospital bill. And the girl that set us on fire, her homeowner's insurance denied liability for it, said that you have to sue us, that they weren't going to pay our bills. Fortunately for us, the Shriners Hospital heard about our story. They agreed to relocate my mother and I from Atlanta to Cincinnati where I would spend the next three months. So imagine this, right? You're an eight-year-old, you're about to start third grade. All of a sudden you're whisked away 500 miles from everybody you know, friends, family. You don't see them for three months. 
you're in intensive care unit, you have one parent who you see just a couple hours a day. My dad would drive up on the weekends, see me drive back home because he was working. It's the only way we could pay our bills. And so as a result of the actual injury, my right arm was physically melted to my body. It would take me over three years to lift my arm up over my head. I would have to learn how to write left-handed to finish the third grade. My neck was physically melted at a 60 degree angle. It would take me over three years to be able to hold my head up straight. My right ear was severely burned, subjected to gangrene. Eventually they had to amputate my entire right ear. Uh, when it's all said and done, right now I'm about 38 surgeries into this. Um, and then on top of that, I was given the diagnosis that you'll never play sports again. Now, it's probably the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Because if you don't know me, that's one of the best ways to get me motivated. Just tell me there's something I can't do. I'm going to spend every waking breath trying to prove you wrong. And as one of the things I remember is just laying there in that hospital bed. It's kind of hard to really map out what this looks like. But for the first month, I couldn't move. So everything you did, you did laying down. You couldn't sit up to watch TV. You had to eat laying down, go to the bathroom laying down. I watched TV laying down with a mirror so you could see the TV. There was a piece of plexiglass suspended from the ceiling over my bed and pressed face down on it were all the get well wish cards from friends and family. And then right there in the middle of this piece of plexiglass was an eight by 11 autographed picture of Herschel Walker. Now I know you're no way. Football fans, you probably can relate to this, but this is 1982 Sugar Bowl. Heisman Trophy winner, Heisman dude. Trophy winner. Again, I grew up in Atlanta, you know, Georgia Bulldogs fan. And it said, best wishes, Shay, for a quick recovery, Herschel Walker. And I stared at this picture every day for a month on my back. And all I could think about is if I ever get out of this hospital, I'm going to commit everything I can to being an athlete again. And after I got the hospital, and it's hard to really give your listeners a true picture unless they really go look up some of my stuff or look it up in my book. But keep in mind, you know, 65% of my body is covered in burns, burn-related scarring. My scars were one inch thick. So when I got the hospital, people stared at me everywhere I went. You'd walk into a store, people just quit talking. You could see them looking at you. You could hear the whispers. You would hear kids, ooh, gross, mommy, look at him. Where's his ear? You could hear parents say, hey, Johnny, shh, quit staring. Be quiet, right? Then you have some people just come right up to you and say, oh, my God, what happened to you? You know? And then on top of that, I was fortunate enough that Freddy Krueger and Nightmare on Elm Street came out. Hmm. Well, we all know how loving and supportive third graders are. What do you think they said when I started walking the hallways in the school again? You get oh, that. Man. Hey, Freddie. And Sean, I'll tell you, when I looked in the mirror, despite everything that my parents were telling me that, hey, it's going to get better. Don't you worry about it. I saw that evil monster looking back at me. It got to where I didn't want to look in the mirror because I didn't want to see the right side of my face. Right. I look at you now, your your face, but that's 30 plus surgeries later, your face looks very normal, face on. How yeah. was it not that way? It, shortly after, it was, it was much worse. Yeah, I mean, it really took about 
at least 13 years for it to start to smooth out. So for the first wow. 10 years, it was bright red, one inch thick. So I wore compression braces, custom orthotic braces, 22 hours a day for three years straight. I wore one that covered my entire chest and fit up under my arm. I wore one that went around my neck so you couldn't turn your head for three years. And then I wore a plastic face mask with holes cut out for your eyes, two holes for your nose and a slit for your mouth. It was basically a hockey mask. And then underneath all those braces, I wore a compression suit, which is like a full body Spanx. And it went from my ankles to my neck to my wrist. I wore the suit and the braces 22 hours a day for three years straight. And the only time I could take them off is when I was either getting a shower or playing sports. That's why I immersed myself in sports was to see it as a remedy to not have to wear the braces. And what a lot of people don't recognize, we talked about some of my achievements related to triathlon. For years, I was the worst kid on the playing field. Nobody wanted me. When we played kickball at school, I was absolutely the worst, the last kid picked every time. But I just kept telling myself, hey, look, just be thankful you're out here competing, that you have the ability. It wasn't about being good. It was about being my best, right? Yeah. I slowly started to see. I, I couldn't run. It took me over a year to learn how to run again. I played baseball two months after getting out of the hospital. In the event that I ever hit the ball, 99% of the time I was thrown out before I could get to first base. I played football the next season. And what was unique is my dad wanted me to be able to play because I played since I was six. The doctor says, no way, you can't play. That's too dangerous. Because I have no nerves on the right side of my shoulder, my arm, and my back. So if I sustained an injury or was cut, I would never know it. Mm. So my dad inserted an additional two inches of padding in my shoulder pads so I could play. And again, I wasn't good. But I was out there knocking heads with everybody, right? <laughs> yeah. And so just over the years, that's just kind of the way I started evolving. I was like, look, just grind it out. Every year you start to see a little bit of progression. This girl got introduced to wrestling. Okay. And that was a true calling for me. Um, one of the things we didn't find out till later in life, but as a result of getting burned when I did, it stunned my growth. I was told all these years I was going to be six feet tall uh, based on all my growth growth charts. Well, guess what? I'm five, seven, right? Um, and so for me, I was always it makes sense. I mean, your body had to divert so much energy Absolutely. and attention to repair and recovery rather than, than growing. Right. So it's hard for, you know, now it makes sense, but back then you're talking about mid eighties. We didn't understand that. Right. But I got introduced to wrestling. And at first I didn't understand what wrestling was like. I thought we're jumping off the ropes I'm going to get <laughs> with a chair. Dude, I'm all pumped. I'm like, <laughs> Turn buckle. Someone's hitting the ladder under stage on accident. <laughs> so, but then when I actually get to see it and the coach says, hey, and you get to wrestle against guys within five pounds of your weight. Like this is a calling, right? Yeah. But one of the things I didn't mention earlier is so when I got burned in 82, do you know what we got for pain medication back then? What? Extra strength Tylenol. So they amputated most of my ear while I was awake. They came by, I remember every couple of days with a pair of scissors and we literally start cutting off part of my ear till it started bleeding. And then the doctor would say, hey, now we have healthy tissue. You're good for now. 
when they would do dressing changes, everything that I went through was never given morphine. We didn't have induced comas back then. Oh. But now, if you look at where I'm at in life, I'm fortunate for that. One of the biggest things that burn survivors deal with now is addiction to pain meds. Yeah. Well, if you've never given them, you can't be addicted. Right. Yeah. And then on top of that, because of what I went through, the mental toughness, the pain threshold that I acquired prepared me for wrestling. I had a great wrestling career in high school, um, two time state placer. And then this a year, uh, 2019 was inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame under the Medal of Courage designation. Thanks, man. And then um, got introduced to boxing in college. Was a three-time boxing champion in college. Never lost. Was wow. inducted into their Hall of Fame. And then I got introduced to a little sport called Ironman. If you're not familiar with that, it's a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and then a 26.2-mile marathon. And I've been fortunate enough the last five years to be ranked top 1% in the world of the Ironman 70.3 athletes. And again, I say this stuff not to brag, but say they didn't know what sparked they not when they told me you'll never be competitive in sports again. That was the best thing they could have told me as a kid, right? And that's kind of what's propelled me in life. It's just I gravitate to those things that most people back away from because they're scared. It's hard. You may fail. You may become uncomfortable. You may question everything that you believe about yourself. And that's why people don't attempt this. But that's what attracts me. Because I know I've been through hell and back. There's nothing that you're going to subject me to that I promise you I haven't been through worse. And once you've been through those things, you realize life isn't so bad. Right? And people talk about COVID. I was like, look, I get it. I understand a lot of people are vulnerable. There's a lot of people dying. I get it. But 98% of us it's more a mental battle for us. I was like, what are you complaining about? You've got air conditioning in your home. You've got Netflix. You've got Wi-Fi. You've got all these sources of entertainment. You know, you're complaining because you're isolated, right? There's things yeah. that you can do. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, I've got five kids. And so we come up with events for them every single day. It's challenging, yes. But, man, we've had a blast doing these kind of things and i'm thankful that what COVID has allowed me to do you know i'm spending more time at home than ever and it's allowed us to be creative i've got two of my kids that i've winged off training wheels since COVID started right nice that's become a priority whereas earlier you know i've got five kids in travel soccer dude it's nuts you know dude, five kids travel soccer any given weekend, we had eight or more soccer games we'd have to go to. And oftentimes it's in different states. But like everything else in life, you just adapt. You figure out a way to make it through it. Um, so that's kind of my backstory in a nutshell. And as you mentioned earlier, you talked about the bear trapping. And so one of the things like when I got out of college, I started to be a wildlife biologist. I've always gravitated towards things that are extreme. And I had a professor that was a world-renowned black bear biologist. I was like, are you kidding me? I'm going to get paid to go out and trap black bears? <laughs> what? 
dude, who wouldn't want to do this, right? So I spent six months living in the woods, trapping bears. We caught over 200 bears during this time. This is what we did. Uh, one of them accidentally, I got too close, left claw marks on my arm. But I think about those experiences, like how many people can say they've wrestled with bears? We weren't given a gun. We weren't giving anything. We had a syringe. You know, we'd set a snare to catch the bear ball, one paw. And we'd have to go in, um, sedate them, wait 20 minutes for the drug to work, take all my meds, wake them up and release. How do you sedate a bear that only has one one hand caught? Yeah, that, so that, that sounds tricky. Uh, it's all about technique. Again, that's kind of why I've got these claw marks on my left arm. And so we set a snare, which is a quarter inch aircraft cable. The snare is six feet long. One end of the snare is attached to a tree. It allows the bear to run six feet around the tree in every direction. Once the bear is caught by that one paw, again, he's got six feet. We show up, we see he's caught. He's destroyed all the vegetation within six feet. I mean, it's a war zone. We've got a three foot pole and we mount a syringe on the end of it. And when you show up, you look at the bear, you say, hey, that guy's, he looks like he's 400. And so you make the drug up based on a 400 pound bear. One guy's job is to distract the bear, ideally to get all the cable, all the slack in the cable pulled out. Then the other guy sneaks in real quick and you jab him right in the hip and get out of there before he grabs you. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I promise you can't make this crap up. Uh, I've got pictures. I can't believe that happened like that approach, like past yeah. 1950. That's incredible. Like they didn't have any dark guns? No. And so my professor was a big animal sentimentalist, and he had done some research showing that the guns that they use leave such a big hematoma on the animals that mm. whereas the syringes don't. And he felt that we could do this if we were smart. Oh. We didn't take any necessary risk. Uh, but it was you who was who was who was sacrificing your arm, or not him, right? Was he? A, he? I hope he was out there with you, risking himself too, right? No, just his PhD students. But <laughs> oh man, I got called. Was I showed up one day? This is a smaller bear, two hundred fifty pounds probably. Was all tangled up in the cable was not moving i was worried the bear was severely hurt was not moving so i walked up literally got within two feet of it didn't move so i walked back prepare the drug i was like man this is a piece of cake right i walked up as soon as i poke it in the hip well it woke the bear up literally and they say don't poke the bear all of a sudden <laughs> this bear's untangled six feet of cable and i'm standing three feet from him I don't have time to turn and run, so I backpedal, knowing I need to get out of that six-foot range. I back, I back up against a rhododendron tree. This bear takes two steps, lunges out with his claws open and his mouth open. He grabs my arm. I start screaming without even realizing what had happened. I just assumed he ripped my arm off because I feel his claw mark come down my arm, my shirt sleeve off. And then I see the bear just slam on the ground beside me my buddy's with me he was supposed to normally distract the bear right 
And he just starts laughing. He's like, oh, my God, you were screaming like a little girl. He was laughing at you? He was laughing at me. And then I looked down, and all it was, like, really three faint claw marks down my arm. But it literally ripped my shirt sleeve off. But that was it. No stitches, nothing. I just assumed based on what was happening right in my face that my was gone, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I did that for six months. Did you slap him or did you punch him after that? I just started laughing. I was like, dude. <laughs> oh, man. You know, um, but it's just one of those experiences. And that's kind of the way I've lived my whole life. But after six months of doing that, it's you and a couple of guys in the woods. You're like, no TV, no telephone, no air conditioning. You're like, this sucks. We would uh, work 14 days on, you have four off. And then when you go back into civilization, like the nearest town was an hour away. It was just so crazy seeing people. And then you'd see girls on top there like, oh, my God, I haven't seen one of these in forever. Yeah. You know? And so. And you're probably like mountain man, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so eventually I was like, you know what? This is not what I want to do for a living. This is fun. I love this, but I was making $75 a week. Ooh. And half that I was sending home to my grandmother because she was feeding my dog during this time. And so I was like, look, I need to get a real job. And so I went back to grad school, got my MBA, and then started doing MA work. And I think it was one of the things that really got me into the MBA program because I signed up for it literally the last day. I had to take the GMAT, couldn't study, just had to show up, take the GMAT. Got a good enough score to get in. But I remember during my interview when they were in there like, you trapped bears for a living for six months, living in the woods. And I think because they need some diversity, I kind of fit that program. Didn't have any professional work experience other than that. Uh, But it was interesting, you know, but here just four months ago, they had me, no, six months ago come back and speak to the MBA program there. Right. That's awesome. It's it's kind of full circle. Here's a guy that barely gets in trap bears for a living. Yeah. Living this kind of a life and share your message with our MBA students, offer them some encouragement as they head out into the real world. That's amazing. Hey, you mentioned Herschel Walker's signed card for you saying, you know, get, get well soon. And that was a prime motivator for you to go into uh, back into athletics. Have you ever told Herschel that? I don't have a way. Like I've tried to send a message. Um, I think it was through Facebook and through Instagram. So I don't mm-hmm. like. I still have the picture. No way. Yeah. So I know. Later. I know Herschel's nephew, and I'll I'll gladly introduce. He's a really cool guy. He played football at Clemson. I met him through an internship. And um, he's awesome. So his name is Mylan. And um, I'll get, I'll introduce you to Mylan and have Mylan connect you. Yeah, I'll so send cool. you a copy of the picture too, just so you can forward it to him. That's awesome. Yeah, I've saved it all these years, dude. And it's just one of those things. And that's why it kind of seemed with me that as athletes, you have an obligation to inspire people, right? That's your job is people look up to you. And then that's why I've always admired Herschel, his platform. I mean, yeah, he's the man, right? Yeah, he is. Push up, sit ups. He's the man. Uh, it was like a, a couple of weeks ago. My one of my teammates sent me an article all about his fitness routine, and it's just insane. I mean, he's a beast. Awesome. 
inspirational yeah but i think i can outrun him now though if we do, <laughs> we do two miles or longer that's the key yeah <laughs> long distance i'm sure um so when when a child is if you were to put yourself in the mind of your dad i think <clears throat> shortly after the accident you mentioned he wanted to, he helped you get back into sports. I think some parents would say, Oh, kid, you know, you know, my kid went through a really traumatic experience. We want to, you know, ease them back into recovery, maybe, to, maybe looking at sports much later, if ever, but he was, it sounds like he was uh, wanting to get you in as soon as you could, if, if it wasn't going to risk, you know, further injury. What, what was his approach or, or philosophy there? And, and what are your thoughts on it as you, you know, years later, you know, yourself an adult now, what, what was your dad's, oh, can you talk us through a little bit of that? Absolutely. So my dad's the same. I mean, he truly is salt of the earth kind of guy. Anybody that knows him will testify. This is a guy that would give you the shirt off his back. If somebody's in need, stranger or not, he would do stop, do whatever he could to help you. And I also believe that when these kind of situations happen and trauma that God allows people to be people they normally wouldn't be to help you get through that. And I can tell you the things that my dad did then, I'm not sure that that's who he would be today, right? Because I think it's natural for parents when you see your kid. I mean, you got to imagine as a parent, I can relate to this. You know, we almost lost my daughter when she was two. She almost died to complications from seizures and it's so easy to comfort them, to take away that pain, but you realize it's that struggle that produces the growth they need to be successful. And fortunately enough, my dad was always one of those that if I said I wanted to do something, that's what was just sheer craziness supported it, right? And mom never really convinced him otherwise. And so when I said, dad, I wanna play baseball, he figured out a way to do it. And so when I told you earlier, I couldn't lift my arm for three years. So think about that playing baseball. Mm. So what I did, he signed up to be a coach, put me at second base. It's the closest distance to first. And I could throw the ball underhand to first base. And so that was kind of the, what he did. It was like, when I said, dad, I want to do this. He's like, he didn't say, well, that's stupid. That's crazy. He was like, okay, well, how can we fare away for you to do that? Mm -hmm. I think that's your job as a parent is not to tell kids they can't. It's to react and say, how can we do that? Put those kind of lips. And so that's why my kids, when they're always like, I don't want to do this. I'm like, hold back saying that's crazy. Mm -hmm. It's always like, okay, well, let's think through this, right? And, and kind of get them talking through this to be part of the solution. And I think... The more we can encourage our kids to take risks, even if we know there's a chance they're going to get hurt, as long as it's not death, let's do it. You know, I just got back. Um, so I've got five kids. I got two girls, six and 14, and I got three boys, 18 and 12. We're really good at math, right? Every two years, we got <laughs> March, April, May, June birthdays. I mean, we've got this stuff down. And so I told my wife, I said, look, the girls want to go to the beach. I have no desire to go to the beach. Boys want to go to the mountains. Me and the boys, we're going to Colorado. We're going to spend seven days doing mountain man stuff. And my wife starts panicking. She's like, please be careful. I know what's going to happen. 
But that's what we did. Every single day we did something. We did zip line, rafting, uh, mountain rail coaster rides, putt-putt, hiking. We hiked up two waterfalls. Then I'd send my wife the videos afterwards. She's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> I said, look, I told you, you're not allowed to ask questions. That's cool. <laughs> you know what happened? Colorado stays in Colorado. <laughs> Watching these boys, 8, 10, and 12, support themselves, climbing up these rocks to get up a waterfall. Like I was there with them the whole time, but we were doing things. That I, there was no way their mom would have signed up for this. You know, I took them on a seven mile hike. We climbed up, I think uh, it's 2,500 foot elevation gain. When we first started, of course, they drank all the water the first two miles. Dad, we can't make it. We're going to die out here. I said, no, you're not. I said, you can literally go a couple of days without water. So dad would come back and said, I'm not quitting. If y'all want to go back to the car, that's fine. But I'm going to the top and see the second waterfall. I knew what would work, right? Yeah. These guys did it. We got to the top. Dad, this is awesome. Oh, my God. Let's call mom. I said, no, don't call mom. Wait till we finish. You know? And it's just amazing having this kind of experiences. And to me, that's what it's about. It's like pushing your kids beyond their comfort zone. And then show them, here's what you get because you were uncomfortable, because you're willing to do that. Like my kids, we do workouts together. And they're always like, well, Dad, how many are we going to do? I never tell them the truth. Never. And I think the key with your kids is teaching that in life, the goalpost is always moving. But we don't stop because somebody changed what the goal is. You just keep going. And so I told one of my sons, you know, we're doing, um, I said, let's do a one mile warm up, right? So then I made it two mile warm up, right? And I said, all right, we're going to do four hills, friends. We wind up doing eight. You know, you just keep changing stuff. I was like, if you want to quit, no, dad, I can keep going. And then at the end, you said, hey, bud, remember when you said you couldn't do this? And then it becomes bragging rights. Right. Uh, <laughs> Especially with three boys. Oh, man. It's, but my girls, don't get me wrong, they're the most competitive. Like if my boys were as competitive as my girls, it'd be amazing. And I'm hoping they catch up to them. But one of the things that was pretty awesome two months ago, we're doing the homeschooling. And homeschooling five kids is borderline suicide. I mean, it's nuts, right? <laughs> Coming from someone who's been through a lot. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's I would pay anything to make this go away right now. But the kid said, hey, Dad, can we st stay up late tonight? Because my wife was really good at enforcing a schedule. He's like, hey, just because you're not in school, we're sticking to the schedule. You know, you're going to bed at 8. You're getting up at 7. We're starting class at 8. I mean, very regimented. They said, Dad, can we stay up 30 minutes late? I said, well, if you can do a five-minute plank, I'll let you do it. And so they're, they're like, Dad, that's crazy. I'm going to bed. But my eight-year-old, who's never shown an interest in these planks before, Dad, I want to do it. Wow. This little guy gets down there. Dude, he's just tough as nails. Doesn't flinch. And I'm talking. I was like, Beckett, your arms look a little weak. Don't you want to quit? <laughs> he's like, Dad, how much longer? I was like, you want to quit? Are you done? You ready to go to bed? You look sleepy. 
I love that man talking uh, trash. To him. Oh, he's gonna be him. tough as nails. Man. <laughs> so he did it, and he starts yelling to all the kids, "Hey, y'all can stay up an extra twenty minutes. I just nailed it." So when we get towards the end of that thirty minutes, they can stay up late. He says, "Dad." What would it take for us not to have school tomorrow? Because my wife had already told me she's thinking about canceling because it's Friday, giving them a day off. I said, tell you what, babe, if you can do a 10-minute plank, you can have tomorrow off. I thought, there's no way in heck, right? I'm going to. <laughs> so he sits there. I mean, he's walking around. You can tell he's contemplating, like, what does a 10-minute plank look like? He goes, Dad, I want to try it. And everybody else already headed upstairs to go to bed. My wife's putting into bed, and she's like, what are y'all doing down there? I said, babe, we got it. Don't worry, right? We'll be up there in just a minute. He goes, Dad, I'm ready. So he starts off, and he's in the plank down on his forearms, right? And I make him really keep his body straight. And I filmed it as document. So we're sitting there, and he gets four minutes into it. He goes, Dad, can I go to a straight-arm plank? to finish the 10 minutes off. I said, you can only do it as long as you don't stretch or bend your back. If I catch you stretching, you're disqualified. So he goes straight up into a straight push-up position. Seven minutes in, I'm like, oh my gosh. He stands the chance of making it, right? So then I'm filming it and we get to nine and a half minutes. He goes, dad, how much longer? I got, I said, 30 seconds, bud, 30 seconds. You can do anything for 30 seconds. 20 seconds go by. He goes, Dad, how much longer? I said, you got 20 seconds. You can see the math isn't adding up, right? He goes, 20 seconds. I said, yes. So another 20 seconds go by. He goes, how much longer? I said, you got 10 seconds, bud. <laughs> you just said it. <laughs> I said, are you going to quit? And he's so mad. He's like, are you going to quit? And I said, if you're done, just quit. Give up. He goes, is that it? I said, yes, you can quit. So he literally just breaks out bawling. And I lay down with him. I'm just like, buddy, I am so proud of you. You just went 10 and a half minutes. Wow. And then he looks at me and goes, really? Jumps up. Mom, Olivia, Max, <laughs> let's go tomorrow. And he's running up the stairs screaming. <laughs> And my wife's yelling at me, what are you doing? I'm trying to get them to bed. Why do you have to always rile them up at bedtime? I said, hey, do you understand the achievement we just made? <laughs> yeah. Dead, right? You know, Man, that's but, such a dad moment, too. Oh. It's always the ever, never-ending battle. It's like, why are you getting them all around? I'm like, this is the best time of the day. It's fun. So that's what we do nonstop at our house. Like, we've even got a ritual that we always eat the same restaurant every Friday night. Every Friday night, I'm there at 5.15 with all the kids and my wife. When we pull home, when we turn onto our street, it's exactly three-tenths of a mile from the stop sign to our house at the end of the road. I tell the kids, get out. We'll see you at home. They get out and run home. So imagine five kids jumping out of the van, running home. And they love it. Sometimes they run faster than others. I've had them... They said, well, Dad, I already took my shoes off. Like, well, if you want to run barefoot, go ahead. But the rule is once you get out of the van, you're not allowed to get back in. 
So if you commit to running home, you have to run home. You're not allowed to get back in and we drive home. So it's just kind of fun. You know, these are little things we do that I think are just different that yeah. we enjoy those kind of things. Earlier, knowing that you're an endurance athlete and earlier you said something about suffering, I've heard you on an interview uh, TV, you, you use the term embrace the suck. Um, I, it seems to me that this is a um, humane way of introducing some some suffering to, to kids that can kind of toughen them up and prepare them for success in the future, right? I mean, it's um, I like that rule of, hey, once you get out, there's no, you know, no getting back in the van. Um, yeah. So I believe, I mean, one of the biggest challenges facing kids is we're teaching kids, you're all winners. Everybody gets a trophy. I hate that stuff. I tell my kids all the time, you don't deserve a trophy. But what I do celebrate and promote them to do is be a great sport. When you compete, give it your all. But I tell them, look, you're not always going to be the best athlete. Many times you won't be the best athlete. But that should never deter you from giving to your best. All I ask is you give it your best and you have fun. That's all I ask for. I don't care if you win. Winning is just a byproduct of your passion and doing your best, right? But one of the things I think that sports is really a great form is it allows kids to learn about themselves. How are they gonna perform and adjust when they're faced with adversity in real life? Why not do a controlled environment on a sporting field? I can tell you like my daughter, my oldest 14, she is so competitive. I mean, she's wired just like me. And I've taken her out. She ran cross country. And when she first started, she was the last one in the race. And she finished, I think, uh, when she finished eighth grade, top runner in the entire school. Wow. Yeah. And I would take her on runs, and I knew at what pace she could run. And I'd get her right to that threshold. And I'd be jogging so I was like, how you feel? Dad, I'm hurting. I said, get in touch with this feeling. Talk to it. I said, you're not going to die. Once you embrace this, you understand that this is okay. It's uncomfortable, but just hold on to it. You're going to get through it. And I said, and if you don't feel this feeling, you're not going hard enough, right? Mm -hmm. This is a good test for you. When you finish your race, if you didn't experience what you're experiencing now, you didn't give it your best. And I think that's what allowed her is just teaching her what does uncomfortable feel like without hurting yourself, right? And that's what I think our job as parents is to help get our kids comfortable being uncomfortable. That's a great concept. I think I can't really relate to running any kind of long distance. You know, the most I did was soccer team in high school. You know, we'd do some conditioning runs, you know, four or five miles, and that was – the worst ever for me. <laughs> but when I see you as a, or, or any other, <clears throat> excuse me, endurance athlete for that matter, running miles and miles and uh, triathlons, uh, marathons, Ironmans, I assume like, oh, well, he's just in shape. Like he can do that. That's, that's not, not hard, but are you still feeling the same way your daughter was feeling where you're in that uncomfortable zone, feeling pain and you just, have learned to to live there in that zone? Absolutely. You know, but Sean, think about it this way. You know, people all the time, I hated running. Physically couldn't run because I had shin splints in high school, never ran in college, hated it, loved cycling. But then 
one of my mentors is a guy named Henry Forrest. I got introduced to this guy 19, uh, I mean, sorry, 2008. And was going in to work out in the gym. And at this time, newly married, and all I cared about was looking good in a T-shirt. So I focused on bench press, curls, and squats, right? Yeah. I was like 33 at the time. And Henry comes up to me one day. This guy's 65. He goes, hey, tough guy. I said, you talking to me? He goes, yeah, I'm talking to you. He goes, why don't you come in my class? It's a boot camp class. Me and a bunch of ladies. And do this exercise for the next hour. He goes, it shouldn't be any problem for a guy like you with all your muscles. Now, it may be hard for you to understand now, but I was 40 pounds bigger then. Wow. It was not all muscle, let me tell you. A lot of it was, but so I get in there, true to form, it's all women. We start this class, and we're doing all core exercises. I'm in tears the first 10 minutes. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, I should be able to do what these women are doing beside me. I can't keep up. I mean, they're making it look so easy. The last 10 minutes, we get to push-ups. I'm like, man, I'm going to show this old bird who he's messing with. It's on. Again, I can't keep up with the guy. And he starts calling me. I goes, SQ, ponytails is kicking your butt. You better pick it up, boy. <laughs> and all I could say was, yes, sir. And I still couldn't do it. I was so embarrassed. I went home that night tomorrow. I said, I just got my butt kicked by a 65-year-old man. Well, I found out the next day, he's not a normal 65-year-old man. He was one of the original Ironmen from 1978, did the Ironman even at 62 years old, and was running 10 miles a day. Dude, wow. I mean, this guy was a rock. So I whipped myself back into shape. I came to this class every single day. Two months later, I'm down 25 pounds. I'm back in what I would call fighting shape. Then he got diagnosed with stage four pancreatic. Long story short, we lost him. And right before he passed away, we made a pledge to Henry. We're going to do the next big triathlon. We don't care the distance to honor him. Just so happened it was going to be a half Ironman, which was a 1.2 mile swim, 56 mile bike, and a 13.1 half marathon. I had never ran more than five miles in my life. I did it one time. That was it. Never swam. Didn't even own a bike. Bought a $500 bike off Craigslist, took some swim lessons, and I just started training thinking this is what I need to do. Well, after I finished the race, finished five hours, 38 minutes, I realized, like, you know what? I'm actually pretty decent at this. Imagine if I knew what I was doing. Hmm. So then I bought a new bike the next week. The next year at a race, I finished, I think, seventh in the country. And started finishing consistently, you know, top 5%, top 10% races. And it was because I just started focusing on getting 1% better, right? I wasn't doing anything much. Well, I wasn't a born runner. But I did so much research. I learned how to run where I shortened my stride. is all about a 180 cadence. It's all about the mechanics. I started buying training plans, doing all this scheduled workouts. And one of the things that kind of jumped out at me is one of the first things I did was I bought this training plan from a book called Be Iron Fit. And the author, Don Fink, asked this question. He goes, why can't any of you do an Ironman? The problem is so many of you get wrapped around what's required at the end 
you don't get started. But if I said, Sean, tomorrow, could you do a 15 minute run walk? I don't care about your speed. Can you run walk for 15 minutes? What'd you say? Yeah. Yeah. What if the next day I said, could you ride a bike for 30 minutes? Not for speed, just 30 minutes. Can you ride a bike? You'd say, yeah. Yeah. Well, guess what? In 30 weeks of this progressive building, you would be an Ironman. It's that easy. But most of us just can't connect those dots. We don't understand how each day builds on the next day. Yeah. But when you see the plan laid out and you start doing like, oh, my gosh, it works. Right. And that's where endurance plays in. And so then once you start tapping into it and you've seen it work, you're like, what else in life have I not attempted? Right. Like last summer, we did the Grand Canyon rim to rim to rim run. We ran south rim to north rim, spent the night. The next morning, got up early and ran back to the south rim. 60 miles, crossing back the Grand Canyons, 20,000 feet elevation gain, 112 degree heat. Wow. It's just, it's unlocking the potential, right? When somebody shows you, here's what you need, you're like, God, I could do that. And I'm going to tell you, if you ever go to these races and you watch these people finish, you're like, he did that? Oh, my God, she did that? Well, I know I could do that. Look at them, you know. But there's just so many things that we have built into our head that we say, it's crazy. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've just realized that those kind of things where people say that's crazy, I'm like, that's perfect, right? Like, I know I can do it. It's just a matter of me figuring out how do I need to do it to be competitive. And then I go find those people. So six years ago, I hired a former world champion to be my coach. Because that's when I said, look, you know what? I'm not happy being the top two, three percent. I want to be top one. So what would it be? What would it take to be top one? And so now I know that if I do his workouts, how I'm supposed to do them, I am in the best physical shape I can be in. That's all I can ask for, right? There's just some things sure. that I can't overcome genetics. And what right. a lot of people realize is like because of the burn, so on a third of my body, I can't even sweat. The other two thirds, I can't stop sweating. So when I'm racing, I sweat out five pounds every hour I'm racing. Is your body trying to compensate for the areas that can't sweat by forcing out more? Absolutely. Areas? Okay. And so I literally feel like I'm on fire every hot race. If it's cold, I'm good. But these hot races where it's 80 and up, dude, my body literally feels like it's on fire. Mm. But I keep reminding myself, hey, just block it out. All right? You're not going to die. You're okay. I mean, dude, I've had it where one Ironman that I did in St. George, Utah, you're literally running through Mojave Desert for the marathon at the time. I was urinating blood before I had to start the marathon. What? <laughs> and you just thought, yeah, I'll just uh, go ahead and run this marathon. I would... My time was 14 minutes slower because of that. But when I came out to the party, <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> I looked at my wife and she gave me a kiss because I was starting the run, right? I just came out of transition. And there was no way I was going to tell her what I was experiencing. She would have freaked out. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and she's like, hey, hurry up. You got to kiss those people. I was like, I'm on it, babe. So I took off, right? But it's just a mental thing. Uh, and that's what you realize is there's so many things that if you can just block it out, 
you can get through it. And that's what I'm trying to teach my kids is that, look, I try to really be aware of what they're truly suffering in pain. And then realize that other times it's just a mental block for them to get them to push through it. And they may cry, they may be upset, but once they get through it, you sit down and say, look what you just did, right? Uh, the same daughter I talked about earlier, I'll never forget when she made the eighth grade uh, track team as a sixth grader, we're driving to the meet and she starts crying in the back. She's, Dad, I can't do it. I'm not ready. I'm not good enough. And I think a normal dad would say, baby, it's okay. Don't worry. Yes, you are good enough. And so I pulled the car over and I said, you know what? You're right. You're not good enough. The coach made a mistake. Let's call him right now and tell him you quit, that you're a quitter, that you don't want to be on the team. Let you and I go home. We're going to watch TV, okay? So I start dialing the number. She, Dad, no, you can't do that. I was like, babe, you told me you can't do it. There's no sense in me wasting two hours watching you if you can't do it. Let's just go home. I still love you. We're fine, babe. Let's go home. Dad, I can do it. I was like, are you sure? I'm not forcing you. If you want to go home, let's just go right now. But call the coach. You have you have to follow through and tell me that you quit. No, Dad. Dad, I can do it. Best meet she ever had. I love that. You know, a lot of parents maybe aren't comfortable doing that, right? Yeah. But I know how to motivate her. And I think, especially with my daughters, conference is the number one thing I can give them. I need to let them know you can do things that you never thought possible, but you got to be willing to do it and take that risk. Right. Yeah. Now I also share with them my stories. Look, there's many races where dad was horrible. One of my most memorable races, I finished fourth from last at the world championships, but it landed me on the cover of USA triathlon magazine and went to 195,000 viewers. And the reason being is because during the race, I had three flat tires. I wind up having to run barefoot, pushing my bike for six miles before I could secure a tube to finish the 75-mile bike and then go run 18 and a half miles with swollen bloody feet. Because I told my daughter I was going to bring her home a finisher's medal. And all I could remind myself during this whole race was, how do I go home and tell my daughter I quit because of a flat tire? Sean, I've done... I think 75 races now, I've never not finished. Every race I've signed up for, I race it, I finish it. I have huge respect for that because I would have totally quit with the flat tire. Um, yeah. But I, I, I mean, did you ever have like quit in you or like normal, you know, a case of normalitis where you 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 thought like a normal person and and didn't didn't just say that's a challenge I can take on. I can meet it. I can break it. You know, I'll, my, your will is always like iron strong, you know, how yeah, we all develop, are you born that way or, or develop? How can, I how can someone like me, normal guy develop that or become, I don't know. You're not born that way. Absolutely not. You asked my parents before I got burned. I was sensitive. You can say anything. I'd start crying. Right. But you will yourself into that. You said, this is the person I want to become. Does it happen overnight? No way, right? But there's things that I do every single day to make myself uncomfortable. I can tell you before COVID, I would travel on average two days a week for work, right? 
And many nights I would leave my house at four in the morning, fly somewhere, fly back home, get home eight, nine o'clock at night. Didn't have time to do my workout. And I would literally start my workout 10 o'clock at night. I've done a 20 mile run starting 10 o'clock at night. I could have easily went to bed. It would have no impact on my conditioning whatsoever. But I told myself, look, if you do this, imagine how tough you're going to be. You will think back to this moment in a race and say, look, if I was able to run 20 miles at 10 o'clock at night, when everything told me to go to bed, I'll be that much more ahead of all my competition. And so it's doing those kind of things. When everything tells you to quit, maybe you're tired, maybe you don't feel so good, do the workout anyway. You don't have to give it 100%, but do it. Just say, look, I'm always going to commit to doing the hard work, no matter how bad I feel. And it becomes, it's just discipline. And that's what people are saying. It's like, I don't just wake up and say, woohoo, I'm ready to go work out today. Let's do it then. You know, there's many days I'm like, God, is it really four o'clock? Man, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? Which like, hey, I have to do it. I committed to this. And it's having that level of accountability. And once you start doing this stuff, you tell people, hey, this is what I'm going to do. Hold me accountable. Right. And so now I know everybody's going to ask me, hey, what are you doing now? What are you doing? Mm-hmm. I can't quit. Nor do I want to. But I think you can definitely make yourself that if that's what you want to be. But if you're somebody that wants the easy things in life and you don't care about living an average life, that's great. I don't want to talk you out of that. Maybe you've got the recipe that I don't understand. But I can tell you the things that mean the most to me in life, I've had to work the hardest for. They were the things that took months, if not years, to get. And they were the things I know that not many people in this world have. And so those are the things that I seek out. Uh, like, I don't understand why people just say, hey, I just want to finish a race. I have never wanted to be just a finisher. Even when you up. first started, like before you before you were, uh, you know, cranking out marathons, just the idea of running a marathon was like in a race wasn't exciting for you. It was you want always wanted to be at the top. Yeah. I mean, like, so when they talked me into doing that half Ironman, so I asked a friend of mine, because, again, I didn't know anything about it. So what's a competitive time? She goes, if you fend under six hours, that's really competitive. So that was my goal. I finished five hours, 38 minutes. My first Ironman, again, I asked him, I was like, hey, I did the half in 538. What's a good Ironman time, especially your first one? They said, if you finish under 12 hours, dude, you're killing it. I did it 10 hours, 31 minutes. Mm. Right? Wow. So then when I qualified for Worlds and all this stuff, it's just, you figure out what it takes. It doesn't mean these people are necessarily better athletes. They're just more disciplined. And that's what I love about triathlon. It's There are truly great runners and great cyclists, but very few of us are born great at run, bike, swim altogether. Yeah. It's like, I'm not a good swimmer. I know that. I know I'm going to come out of the water, middle of the pack. But I know I'm going to make it up on the bike and get you on the run. Right? Like I know when people are truly suffering at the end of the race, this is where I pick up the time. Could you talk to me a little about your prehab and rest and recovery? Because um, I think it's, for especially for someone on the outside looking in at endurance athletes, it's easy to focus on 
the achievements and and the race, but talk to us about what goes into preparing your body for it and maintaining your body for that type of, uh, uh, those type of miles, you know, the wear and tear on your body. Yeah. And I think first and foremost, number one, I look at my kids' soccer events before I schedule any races. I usually have to pay late fees for registration because I want to make sure that me competing isn't taken away from me being a father. And so I made a commitment to my wife when I first started down this road. I said, look, here's what's involved. I showed her that 30-week plan. I said, love, what do you want in exchange for this? You know, this is very self-oriented. She says, I need two days breakfast in bed. Bam. So she's had that for 12 years now, right? Um, but I'm very regimented. I eat the same thing every day for breakfast. Every morning when I'm in town, I have two frozen blueberry waffles, a cup of coffee with an extra shot of it. I'll wait exactly one hour before, before I start my workout. I've done that last 12 years straight, every single day. I can tell you every single race that I've raced in, all 75, I have pizza the night before the race, greasy pizza, every single time, every race. I can tell you every race except for one, I would have pancakes for breakfast. Always have pancakes. The one reason why I didn't is because I was racing in Edinburgh, Scotland. I didn't realize pancakes was not something they have. They have potato cakes, which is not pancakes. I went to a McDonald's at 5 a.m. getting what I thought would be pancakes for breakfast yet. So I had to get a double cheeseburger. That was a free race meal. Um, but I can tell you, I'm a person that experiments on themselves. You know, I told you about my sweat condition. I spent five months weighing myself five times every day. I'd weigh myself when I woke up, before a workout, after a workout, I would measure the fluid that I was starting the workout with, the fluid left in my bottles afterwards, even pouring a measuring cup. I'd measure my urine output to calculate my sweat rate. That's how I came wow. up with it, doing that for five months. I can tell you I've spent years that I actually go do my bike at exactly the time I'd be doing it in a race at the same time. So I could be used to the sun beating down on me. I would do the run at exactly the same time in training that I would be running a marathon during the race because I didn't. I wanted to mimic race conditions as much as possible. When I do my long workouts, I actually would do it in my race kit. Because I want to know if I'm going to have any unusual chafing, anything. I've right. experienced it first in practice, right? So yeah. I'm very regimented, very structured. Um, and because I don't change anything, I have no surprises. You know, knock on wood, 75 races, never had gut issues, anything like that. Wow. What, do you do a lot of stretching and are you pretty yeah. – um, you know, Zero. religious about your sleep or, or any, any, anything. Zero stretching. Like I'll stretch in the shower after my workout, I'll bend down, touch my toes. That's it. Um, <laughs> like my diet, I don't know if it's a healthy diet, but I mean, I don't drink sodas. I don't eat sugar. I drink my coffee black. I'm just really careful not to intake a lot of sugar. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, I'll still have pizza during the week. I'll still maybe have a hamburger. Uh, I'm not a big fruits and vegetables kind of guy. You know, every Friday we do Mexican margaritas. Um, that I did that this Friday before my virtual event, you know, 
because um, I thought it was more important to be there with my family. Uh, and then sleep, yes, I do try to get, especially before races, seven hours sleep. So I'm pretty strict on my sleep. I try to get seven hours every night. Okay. But you know, sometimes I can't, you know. And I can tell you the years where I was tracking my sleep, I noticed a big difference when I was getting from six to seven hours sleep. Hmm. And so that was one of the things I'd read a lot about is most amateurs shortchange themselves on sleep, and that's why they're getting injured, not performing at their best. Yeah. Speaking of injuries, I think any any athlete's going to have injuries. doesn't matter what the sport is. You're going to have injuries. How do you balance um, pushing ahead in a sport where it's all about, you know, pain and, and staying in that zone with not making a, a minor injury worse or a moderate injury incapacitating? Yeah, I think a lot of it's just getting to know your body, right? So I've had a lot of injuries non-triathlon related i've had amnesia concussion broken nose i've broken 15 bones i've got a plate and seven screws in my left leg torn acl torn meniscus arthritis both knees arthritis in my neck i get synthetic cartilage injections in my knees every six months so i, I have what i call chronic pain just from the years of all the kind of extreme sports i did before marriage but I really understand like when I'm truly hurting versus just sore and uncomfortable, right? Because uh, one of the things I believe in is like when you're doing your running and your biking, um, I don't stretch, but I do a, a warm up, right? So I'll ride at 70% of what my target ride's going to be at loosening the, the muscles up. Same for the run. Like I don't just go out and run full blast. I'll go spend doing a two mile warm up at a slower pace to loosen the muscles up. But for me, it's just being aware of, hey, something's not right, you know, and I have made the mistake once, once. And after that, I never did it. I pushed through a hip pain on a long run and it sidelined me for two weeks. Um, so now when I feel something like I can tell it's beyond just being uncomfortable, you know, start walking, slow it down that, hey, you know, that's one of the benefits of age, right, is you learn to recognize things. Um, but I don't lift heavy weights. Everything I do is in my basement or in a hotel gym. It's all push-ups, pull-ups, planks, you know, all body resistant stuff. Hmm. Awesome. Um, shifting gears a little bit into hobbies, obviously, you know, racing is a big interest. Um, it's, um, do you have any other hobbies that you practice in or, in, and, um, anything you'd like to be doing more of? I love anything outdoors. And so with my kids, every year, December, we go snowboarding. Love it, right? We live for the mountains. And we try to spend some time in the summer in the mountains. I mean, that's, I love spending time out in the mountains. Love it. Just love being in nature. You know, taking my kids to Yellowstone to see all the big game. Like when we were out there, I would wake them up every morning at five. We'd go get in the van by 530. We were out there with, um, scopes looking at animals because we know the best time to see them is early morning so for me just being outdoors in nature or something like if, if that was my dream it would be spending more time in nature but mm -hmm. it's also one of the things with my job i realized hey my goal is to provide enough income to support us and allow us to do those kind of things as a hobby 
Because one of the things I did realize is that back when I was trapping the bears, that I made the mistake of confusing a hobby for a profession. When you start getting paid to do a hobby as a job, it's no longer fun for you because you're getting paid to do it. And that's why I love triathlon. Like I think if it was my profession, I wouldn't enjoy it as much. It takes away the love for it. And that's why I mm. love it. college football. You know, amateur sports is watching people play because they love it, not because I'm getting paid every day to do this. Right. Is there a book you've given as a gift to someone else? Um, and uh, other, or in other words, are there any particular books that have greatly influenced your life that you'd recommend to listeners? Well, as a shameless plug, I always give my book, What the Fire Ignited, to people. Yeah. You know, um, so that was kind of one of the cool things when you spend time to put your own book out there. But probably the best book that I've read that's the most impactful is Endurance, talking about Ernest Shackleton and what his team went through back in, what, 1915, 1916. Are you familiar with the story? No. Ernest. Uh, was going to cross Antarctica. They were going to be the first team to do it. And his crew of 26, they got stranded in Antarctica. They were stuck there for two years. So I tell everybody, try to imagine that. Try to ma imagine being stuck in the most unbelievably harsh environment in the world for two years. They didn't have Wi-Fi. They didn't have North <laughs> equipment. They didn't have the hand warmers, you know, all the stuff that we have now. But when you read this book, you read about all these things that just kept happening. And no matter what happened, they just adapted. Because one of the things that he believed is the key to surviving is keeping the brain focused on survival and positive things. So every single day, even though they're straining an article, he had them reading, studying. He had them playing soccer, doing things to keep their brain focused on how do we get out of here? Wow. What's amazing is not a single person died. So think about that. Wow. And that was a commitment he made to them when they got first stranded. He goes, I will get every one of you out of here. You have my word on it. And he even had an opportunity. He was the first one out, him and two others. And they said, look, you need to go to the hospital and get care and go back. He's like, no, I'm going back with you to get the other 23 men, 24 men. Because I want them to see me first. That was my commitment. Wow. So if, the more you read about this guy, you're like, all right, I want to be like Ernest Shackleton. At least as it relates to that, right? Maybe not yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't want to get stranded, but I want to yeah. uh, apply the lessons. And that was called endurance, you said? Endurance, yeah. But, you know, Sean, one of the things for me that I'm constantly reflecting on is, To be honest, my kids don't care about all the triathlons and wrestling. All they care about is who are you as a dad, right? Are you there for me? Do you care about me? Are you trying to help me grow? And that's what you constantly have to do as a parent is think about that. Like when you're doing things, is this helping your relationship with your family or is it just helping you? And that's one of the things like when I watch the Michael Jordan series and I've watched all these documentaries and all these great coaches and stuff, but I say, but what do their kids say about it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how I want to be known. I want my legacy to be my kids say I was a great dad. I taught them things they never knew existed. That's what I want to be known for. I don't care what people say about what you did in triathlon and stuff. It's 
what did I teach my kids? And that's what I want it to be my legacy. And I think it's so easy for people to get wrapped around their own individual contributions and ignoring your greater responsibilities to your spouse and to your kids. Yeah, that's very well said. I appreciate you pointing that out. Yeah, I mean, because it, it's what gets me going because I think naturally we all face roadblocks. But when you know you've got a higher purpose, which is doing it for your kids, quitting is never an option. And that's what I tell myself all the time when I'm in these races. I'm like, how do I go home and tell my kids I didn't give it my all? How can I shortchange myself, right? Hmm. I'm I'm also glad you mentioned your book. It's called What the Fire Ignited. Um, I'll be picking up a copy for my son. He's uh, my oldest. He had a a minor burn. It did require hospitalization for a few days, but um, he can. That was um, you know being ten years old. That was the toughest thing he's been through. You know he had a graft, and thankfully it healed up really well. But um, it was a a challenging experience for him, and so I'm. You know, after talking with you and getting to know you, I'm excited. I'm definitely going to pick up a copy and and we'll read it and have him read it too. I think he'll enjoy some of the ear stories in there. So like the prosthetic ear I have, I didn't have this until 10 years ago. And so as you'll see in the book, there's a lot of entertaining stories related to my ear popping off or temporarily losing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, let's see. If you could have, here's a question. I uh, another question I stole from Tim Ferriss, who uh, I always enjoy reading his content. He's got a, a good way with questions. So this question is: If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, um, getting a message out to potentially you know millions or billions of people, what would it say and why? Embrace the suck. And the reason being is I think people need to know. Life is going to be hard. If anybody ever told you life's fair, it's going to be easy. They lied to you. They did you the biggest disservice anybody could ever do for you. As soon as you know that, hey, life's going to be tough, to welcome it, embrace it. And then when you come out on the other side of it, you'll be a changed person. And that's what you need to realize is that like when I'm facing obstacles now, I'm always asking myself, this is so incredible. When I get through this, Imagine what else I can do, right? Look at it as obstacles or opportunities in disguise. They are preparing you for something greater. I like that. Uh, What is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Probably my unusual habit is just the fact that I have to eat the same thing every single day when I get up. I mean, it's very regimented. Like if you start messing with my schedule, I get a little bothered. I can do you, What do you do when you're on the road? Do you still have you do you, I can't imagine you pack a frozen waffle uh, with you on when you travel. What do you do there? So there I actually travel with instant ground coffee so I can make this coffee in my room. Okay. Uh, I do that for all the races. And if it's just I'm at a hotel for work. Usually I will just eat like a power bar for breakfast because I don't have that option. Um, But if it's a race, I will go spend time finding the restaurant and buy the pancakes a day or two before. And then we'll heat them up race day morning. Nice. That's commitment to the the routine. Yeah, no, I I go out of way to keep everything very consistent. 
Um, but, you know, I'm also one of those people, I get annoyed when people tell me they can't. Because I'm going to find 20 ways to convince you you can, right? Yeah. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? You know, I think one of the things that really resonated with me, and this is more professionally than it is personally, was typically the job that you retire in at 50 is the job that you'll retire. I mean, the job that you're in at 50 is the job that you'll retire in. Hmm. So you start thinking about it and you said, and so I looked at this when I was 43 and I said, man, my goal is I want to run a sales team. I want to sit on boards. I want to influence how people sell. And at the time I was a senior vice president over sales, but I was an individual contributor. And so I went to my company and said, look, I need to figure out, is there a path for me to get into senior leadership to run a sales team here? Not saying, can I do it today, but is there a path? Can we map it out? Again, I need that 30 week program, right? Is it 30 yeah. months? What is it? Can we map it out? And, and I started telling myself, look, I need to be able to connect the dots so I can say 50. I'm in that role. Is there a path to get here? Long and short, there wasn't. I walked away from the highest paying job I've ever had at the top. Walked away from significant amount of money to go join another company where they could said they said Shay, look in two years if you do this this and this, that path is fulfilled. You will be in there. Well, guess what? Two years later, I'm in that role I wanted, and I think we've been very successful. But it all came from about starting where you want to be, backtracking. Sorry, right, what do I need to do today to make it happen? Just like when you go on vacation, what do you do? First, you say, hey, I want to go to 30A, whatever it is you want to go. You pick a destination. Then you start saying, well, I guess we need to rent a house. How long do I want to stay? What days of the summer do I want to go? And then you right. start back planning, right? How soon do I need to put in my vacation leave for work? What do I need to get done at work so I can go? Well, imagine if you approached everything in life that way. Focus on where you want to be, then backtrack it to where you need to start doing today. Yeah. That's where many people miss out. Right? They can't figure out how to do it. But yet every one of them can tell you how they would do their vacation. I like that. When we uh, shifting into family topics again, something we've uh, has been interwoven throughout the conversation, which I appreciate. Um, is there what I think you're, from the sounds of it, I love how you're helping the kids to be uh, mentally strong. What would you say is um, if there's one thing you're definitely nailing as a parent, what would you say that is? I think it's the tough love concept, right? That we we tell them all the time when they say, Dad, that's not fair. I said, absolutely. It will never be fair. Get over it. I don't want to hear it. And I'm constantly trying to instill confidence in them. So when they're struggling on something, I'll tell them, why don't you just quit? You're not good enough. This is too hard. Are you going to let your brother beat you? Really? And it's just getting them, like, even when they say, you know, we'll do some math quizzes. They'll say the answer is 25. I said, are you sure? How about you bet me your iPad on that? Well, Dad, what? I said, wait a minute. If that's the answer, do you know your name? Would you bet your iPad if your name 
if I asked you your name, they said, yeah, I, said, I want you to be that way with math. You know what I'm saying? It's <laughs> that be confident, but when you're not, admit it. And so these are kind of things to teach them how to be confident. Don't let somebody sway you and say, are you sure? Is that your final answer? And then you start second guessing yourself. I said, look, if that's your answer and stick with it, I'm fine with you being wrong, but be confident in what you're doing and stand behind yeah. it. Don't change it because somebody starts trying to play mind games with you. Hmm. Would you, is there any parenting advice that you frequently hear being shared around that you would disagree with? Yeah. One of them is I hear parents want to be their kids' friends. We tell our kids all the time, we are not your friends. We are your parents. You will respect us. You will do what we tell you, you know, while you're in this house. And I think so many parents do things. They want to be their best buddies and all. I don't think that's what your job is to be. Your job is to help these kids, mentor them, give them the structure they need. And you can't do that in being their best friend. And I think my wife has been phenomenal with them and saying, reinforcing that message, but, but also letting them know, listen, you can say whatever you want to mom and dad as far as stuff you're experiencing. We want to know about it, right? If you're scared about something, tell me. If you're struggling, we want to help you through that. We don't ever want you to have to deal with this stuff in a vacuum. But just know we're here as your parents, not as friends. And because of that, we have unique experiences that we can help you get through this. Right. Very good distinction. Um, as a dad, what are some of the lessons you're learning lately or... Um, Maybe another way to say it is what what are in what ways are you a better father now than you were three to five years ago? For me, it's letting my kids do stuff and knowing it's not going to be perfect. You know, I've got an obsessive compulsive mentality at times. And so, like, if I'm having my boys help me build something, just let them do it, knowing it's going to look like crap at times. Like we're hammering, hammering and cutting stuff. It's like part of me wants to fix it. No, yeah. you can't cut it. Here's how you cut it straight, right? Yeah. It's letting me do it anyway. And they're like, well, Dad, I messed up the piece of wood. I was like, well, you know, I told you in the beginning, but you insisted. <laughs> so I have to let them do it their way to learn, right? So I think that's where I've gotten better, just kind of letting them do it. So they, they learn more by making the mistakes as opposed to me just constantly micromanaging them and saying, look, here's how you do it. Here's how you, you drive it in. Here's how you cut it. But I've also, I think, done a better job getting them involved in just small, like, home improvement tasks. Like, they really love contributing. And it's just like yesterday, I had to fix a piece of wood coming off our shed. I was like, hey, Maddox, hey, bud, you want to come out here? absolutely dad so we got there and i walked him through look so here's why we're going to do it this way you know so i think that's i like that um so one question i have is um if you ever it's hard to imagine you feeling overwhelmed or, or having a bad day but when when those days come um what do you do how do you um recharge um how do you uh, respond when you're feeling overwhelmed or, or having a rough time as a dad or just in general? I'd be lying if I said I don't feel overwhelmed. I think we all do. That's natural, right? The key is 
as long as you don't feel overwhelmed on a consistent basis. And so for me, it's exercise has always been good therapy. I'll get on my bike, go watch a movie, just ride, watching a movie. Uh, sometimes just walking through the neighborhood. A lot of times it's reading a book about somebody else that's went through a struggle. So I think one of the things that we all struggle at times is having a sense of perspective. And so sometimes you need to read about somebody else's struggles that just overshadow yours to kind of put you back in your place and say, hey, look, it's really not that bad. For instance, like with my daughter, when this all first started with COVID, she was 13, struggling with the isolation. And I said, hey, babe, do you know how old Anne Frank was when she had to spend two years living in an attic? Yeah, she was your age. I said, can you imagine two years living in an attic and there's only certain hours of the day that you can actually talk and move around? And so I think that's what we all need is just sometimes a sense of perspective to kind of say, hey, look, yes, it's tough right now, but it could be so much worse. Mm -hmm. He said, you're okay. Today was a bad day, but tomorrow's a new day, right? Erase it, start over and focus on that. What's something that you are looking forward to in the next 12 months? I have booked a snowboarding trip to Telluride. Yeah. So last year we couldn't go because I had to have uh, shoulder surgery. And then we were supposed to go uh, this summer to Europe. Of course, that got canceled. And, and so I booked this trip literally two days after we came home from our Colorado trip with the boys. And so I'm trying to commit, let's sign up for a vacation every six months to give us something to look forward to. I don't care if it's a weekend or a week, but let's actively, during this time of uncertainty, let's commit to something six months from now that we know it's going to happen. And to me, it just helps having something to look forward to. Like historically, I would sign up for races. My kids had their soccer tournaments. Well, all that's gone, right? We don't have that to look forward to. So pick something you can put on your calendar. You're like, hey, this, you know, just get through to here and then hit reset, start over. Speaking of which, can you tell us uh, of, of events and uncertainty? Um, you ran a virtual race uh, a couple of days ago. Why, why were you running a virtual race? I don't think I addressed this earlier. And it's something important okay. that I think is, is good to bring up. So I race now in the Ironman 70.3 series, which is half Ironman. And the last race I did, which was March 1st, I did it in Patagonia. And I did it as an early birthday gift to myself and also as an event to give me something to look forward to. Because I mentioned I had that shoulder surgery in October. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was going to be a four to six month rehab. So I signed up for the race on month five coming out of rehab. To every single day, don't skip rehab. You've got this race. And the whole goal was to qualify for Worlds. And I told my kids, if dad qualifies, we're going to New Zealand because that's where the race was. So imagine I spent six months doing this, qualified, got to go to, got into New Zealand. Well, they canceled New Zealand this past week because of COVID. I don't blame them. New Zealand's not letting Americans in. <laughs> it may be. It's all scheduled for this year. I was supposed to race last weekend. And so then they said, hey, but we are doing this virtual race. You kilometer run 
and then you do a 90 kilometer bike, which is 56 miles. And that's on a virtual race course. And so you're all riding the same race course and it syncs with your bike equipment in your house. Huh. I mean, it's, it's legit. It's crazy how accurate this thing is. And then after that, you had to run a 21K run, which is a half marathon. And so then you upload all your data from your watch, which was interesting because Garmin is a victim of uh, ransomware right now. So we had to all figure out ways to upload our data out of our watches. <laughs> so that was it, you know, but it was 93 degrees here in Nashville this weekend. And normally in a race, there's aid stations every mile in the run. They normally have cold drinks, ice, sponges, cups of water that I take every mile. Yeah. And so knowing I didn't, wouldn't have that, you know, I set out a couple um, Gatorade bottles in the park, but I would pick a bottle up, run with it in my hand for two miles, drop it, run two miles without water, grab another bottle, run with it, and just keep passing them off. Wow. Uh, I made it through it. It was miserable. You know, I was slower than I wanted to be, but still met my targeted time knowing how hot it was going to be and how miserable. Uh, yeah, so it took me four hours, 33 minutes. Uh, so unofficially right now, I think I'm in fifth. Uh, I think I'll move up a place or two when they start looking at some of the data, but we'll see. I just think that's awesome when it's something you've been working towards for a very long time, qualifying for this, and when it's canceled, rather than feeling sad about it and feeling sorry for yourself, you you push through, and that's incredible. 93-degree heat, you know, you don't have the ability, you don't have people handing you drinks or nice and sponges to cool off the side of your body that doesn't sweat. I mean, that's, that's perseverance sticking with it, so really impressive. Um, two couple real quick questions, and we'll we'll wrap this up. Um, so with the COVID, any good uh, podcasts or shows that you've been watching, whether individually or with the family, that you'd like to plug? You know, I don't watch much TV. I watch movies on Netflix all the time while I'm mm -hmm. exercising. Uh, so we just watched Old Guard yesterday. That was pretty good. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> So that's my thing. And then, like, I had, I can't remember the name of this other one, but I was showing my kids all these extreme sports, you know, videos showing them, like, these guys, I mean, they're snowboarding, wearing the squirrel suits off the mountains. Oh, man. Uh, it's just nuts, right? Of course, I'm like, hey, don't you guys ever try this? But look, <laughs> right, these guys yeah. are crazy. I mean, so that's the thing. Like I said, I, I don't sit down and watch TV, but we – Dig it into a habit. We've been doing at least two days a week of doing movie and popcorn as a family. That never happened pre-COVID because we had five kids in travel soccer, right? And so we're at soccer fields every night. And so that's one benefit of COVID is us being able to sit down and do that kind of stuff on a weekly basis. Hmm. That's great. Um, what is a good cause that you wish more people knew about? I think the Shriners Children's Hospital is a phenomenal cause. I benefited from it. I know tons of people that's benefited from it. I've raced as their ambassador in the Spartan World Championships. When you know that 
they treat all kids, regardless of their ability to pay, for life, you know, until they're no longer a kid. It's unbelievable. They treated me for 13 years. You see the kind of work that they do and the kind of kids that they're working with. I mean, it's some of the physical disabilities they're treating. I mean, it's devastating, right? I wish more people could see the work that they do, and then you would understand why it's so important to contribute to them. And I can tell you that's one of the impacts is COVID has had an impact on their fundraising as well as every other charity out there, you know, because people don't have as much money right now and they're being a little more selective. But if you have the opportunity, please consider donating to the Shriners Children's Hospitals. Awesome. And lastly, for anyone who's interested in learning more, following you, finding your book, where can people uh, find you and, and uh, tune in and get updates on Shayesku? You can go to my website, shayesku.com. That's S-H-A-Y-E-S-K-E-W. Um, you can go on LinkedIn. It's Mr. Shay, and then the letter S, the letter Q. That's the phonetic spelling of my last name, S-Q. And you can find me on Facebook as well. Same thing, Shayesku. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Shay. It's been a true privilege. I've enjoyed uh, the whole conversation. And uh, again, thank you very much. Well, it's been fun. And I hope we encourage some dads to get out there and create some memories with their kids. Yep, uh, we certainly will. So thank you very much and uh, enjoy your day. You too. Thanks.